0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump, my name is Rick Archer, Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done nearly 650 of them now. If you haven't seen any of these before, and you want to check out previous ones, go to bathgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu, where you'll see them all organized in various ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. I say listeners because it also exists as an audio podcast. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on the website, and there's a page which suggests alternatives to PayPal if you prefer. My guest today is a good friend, Dwayne Elgin. I've had him on the show before. I think it was five years ago or so. He is an internationally recognized speaker. Author and social visionary. He has an MBA in business and MA in economic history. His books include Choosing Earth, Awakening Earth, Voluntary Simplicity, and The Living Universe. He has worked as a senior staff member of the Presidential Commission on the American Future and a senior social scientist, co authoring numerous studies on the long range future for clients, such as the President's Science Advisor. The National Science Foundation, and others. Duane has also co authored three nonprofit organizations working for media accountability and citizen empowerment. He received the Peace Prize of Japan, the GOI Award, in recognition of his contribution to a global vision, consciousness, and lifestyle that fosters a more sustainable and spiritual culture. Duane is the co director of the Choosing Earth Project. He also co wrote a book with Joseph Campbell. I'd like to read some blurbs on the back of his book, not to plug the book, but to emphasize the importance of the conversation we're going to have today. And in many respects, in some respects, I think this may be one of the most important conversations I've I've had on this program. And as time goes on over the decades, I think it'll be recognized, the things we'll talk about today will be recognized as the most important things we could have been talking about at this time. So here are a few blurbs. This is from Gene Houston, who has been on Bad Gap. Choosing Earth is the most important book of our time to read and dwell within it is an awakening experience that can activate both an ecological and spiritual revolution. This one is from Irvin Laszlo. We'd love to have on that gap, a truly essential book for our time from one of the greatest and deepest thinkers of our time. This is from Joanna Macy. This may be the perfect moment for so prophetic a voice to be heard. And, Lynn Twist. Lynn has been in back, gap not long ago. Choosing Earth is timely, relevant, clear, potent, and absolutely brilliant. Let me turn it over to you, Duane, because I've talked enough for, for starters. Why don't you give people a nutshell version of what we are going to talk about and why you think it's as important as I obviously do.
1: Well, first of all, it's a delight to be here with you, Rick. You're one of my favorite interviewers, <laughs> so it's a real pleasure to be here. Why is this important? The world is in a time of profound transition. We can look at this in various ways, but I'm suggesting that we go really deep And look through the trauma of our times beyond the gloom and doom to a time of profound transformation for the entire species. There's never been a time like this in human history. So that's the arc of uh, conversation I'd like to have here today.
0: Good. And when you say gloom and doom, it's funny because as I was reading your book, I was on board with what you were saying, but I was putting myself in the mindset of some people who might read it, who might think, "Yeah, this guy's a bummer. He's being so pessimistic. I mean, things aren't this bad, are they?" Mm -hmm. And I've actually had conversations about climate change where they say, "Well, you know, it's all been overblown. I mean, Al Gore was saying things 20 years ago that didn't come to pass, and Greta Thunberg is just overexcited young girl. She should go back to school. All this doomsday stuff." is just an exaggeration, and it's really not going to be that bad, and isn't that bad, and so on and so forth. So what would you say to give them a clearer perspective, perhaps?
1: I would suggest that we take the long view. I've been looking at these trends as a futures researcher for truly a half-century now. And these trends grow slowly but inexorably And it's a vice in which humanity is going to find itself and we either rise to a new level of maturity and consciousness and communication or we're going to collapse and fall into a really dire circumstance. But that is not something that happens swiftly, but it's slow but it's inexorable and it's underway now. We see it, for example, here I live in California. The droughts, historic. The fires, historic. We're burning up on the west. We're getting flooded on the east. The world is in transition profoundly, and we can speak about this.
0: Yeah. As you may know, I was a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and I was on a boat ride with him on Lake Lucerne in about 1974 or 5, and he was talking about a coming phase transition, he called it. And he didn't like to scaremonger, but he said, you know, it's it's going to be kind of heavy. I mean, he didn't use that yeah. word either. And people are saying, well, yeah. what can we do about this? You know, how can we survive this? And he said, well, most fundamentally, hold on to the self. By that he meant S self, you know, know thyself that will be your most secure foundation. So I got interested in the whole idea. And I remember in early 80s, I read a book called um, Prophecies and Predictions, Everyone's Guide to the Coming Changes by a woman named Moira Timms. And what she did was she took the prophecies of ancient cultures from around the world, and she correlated them with historical events, which had actually come to pass. And then she brought it up to the present day, and then took their continuing prophecies, which hadn't happened yet, and painted a scenario much like the one you paint in your book. Kind of like your third option, which we'll get to as we go along here, which is that it's going to be rough, but we could rise out of this to a much better civilization. And before turning it back to you, I just want to read a quote from your book. This is from Gus Speth, former director of the Council on Environmental Quality. He said, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystems collapse, and climate change. But I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. I just want to say that that statement encapsulates what has been my fundamental motivation since I was 21 years old when i became a meditation teacher because i felt like consciousness is most fundamental remember the new dimensions radio with michael and justine toms that was great It used to be on npr and their little tagline at the beginning was it is only through a change in consciousness that the world will be changed so that was what i dedicated my life to and I'm still doing so, although there were some diversions where I had to earn a living and stuff. But I just felt like consciousness has the greatest leverage. It's the most fundamental thing. And if we can enliven that, we'll have the biggest impact. And frankly, I would be very pessimistic if I didn't recognize that level of life and recognize that there seems to be some kind of global awakening taking place simultaneous with a global collapse, which already seems to be underway.
1: Yes. Well, we are going somewhere. People think, well, this is pretty much it. We live in a non-living universe. It's a dead universe. What more is there? Well, we are just touching the surface of life when we look at it in that way, and it's with the new consciousness, a deeper consciousness, that we look beneath the surface of life to the deep aliveness that all the world's wisdom, traditions, and teachers have spoken about. And it is that that awakens a new sensibility and a new sense of potential for the human journey. So uh, that's something that is foundational to my view of where we're going as well.
0: Yeah, I pulled a couple more quotes from your book on this. You said, if the universe is viewed as dead at its foundations, then it is natural to exploit the earth and use it up. If the universe is viewed as alive at its foundations, then it is natural to cherish the earth and care for it. Plato, you quoted as having said, the universe is a single living creature that contains all living creatures within it. Einstein said, we are souls dressed up in sacred biochemical garments and our bodies are the instruments through which our souls play their music. So I just want to throw those in because there are some beautiful quotes you put in your book.
1: Great. Well, let's back up a little bit here because I really want to get into exactly what you're pointing to now. But to enter that from where the dominant culture finds itself right now. And uh, we're just waking up as a culture, as a species, and we're beginning to say, well, what pathways lie before us. We see these extraordinary trends of of climate change, species extinction, resource depletion. We're running out of fresh water. 40% of the people on the planet are already water stressed. We have extraordinary inequities of wealth and well-being around the world. This cannot hold. This cannot hold. So change is underway of necessity. But then the question is, what kind of change? What are the possibilities for the future? And after decades of research, I've finally come to three possible pathways. And I don't think any one of these is going to be dominant in the near future. It's going to take a while for them to play themselves out. But the three pathways are, one, a pathway of functional extinction. We are no longer a powerful player in in the evolutionary process of the planet. So one is functional extinction. A second is uh, just crushing authoritarianism. We're already seeing that come alive in the world now. And a third is the one that you, Rick, and I have been drawn to with our lives, and that is deep transformation. Why don't we take a look at the uh, first video that really presents these three pathways for the audience. Okay, good. When we look from a big picture perspective, we can see three dominant pathways emerging in response to the global mega crisis. The first pathway is one of crash and collapse. It's a business-as-usual approach, where we make small changes that do not upset the status quo. In making only small, gradual changes, systems unravel, and this culminates in a devastating evolutionary crash and the collapse of civilizations around the Earth. The second pathway is an authoritarian future that is empowered with artificial intelligence. Collapse is prevented, but at the cost of human freedom and creativity. A digital dictatorship controls our future. The third pathway is one of great transition. The old world is breaking down and a new world is being born. An awakening consciousness fosters a deepening relationship with all of life. We weave together a new world with a higher level of potential and purpose. This is the visual of the crash and collapse pathway. All three pathways have the same beginning. They start with a time of great unraveling in the 2020s, followed by a great fall, a free fall in the 2030s, and followed then by a time of great sorrow in the 2040s. There are two sets of arrows. The blue arrows represent the direction the planet is headed. The yellow arrows represent the movement that is emerging for transformation. You'll notice that on the crash pathway, the yellow arrows are very thin. Continuing business as usual with a focus on growth, Extraction and separation means the collapse will become a devastating crash and could end in functional extinction. Now let's look at the visual for the authoritarian pathway. Like the crash pathway, it shows a time of great unraveling, followed by a great fall, and then followed by a time of great sorrow. Again, There are only a few yellow arrows representing transformation coming in to help. Just before the crash, authoritarian controls pull back the momentum which produces a stagnant future, one of constraint and conformity. It may also produce ruthless leaders making decisions for all. Like the crash and authoritarian pathways, the great transition pathway starts with a time of great unraveling, followed by a great fall, and then followed by a time of great sorrow, On the Great Transition Pathway, there are many more uplifting arrows moving through the 20s and 30s. The yellow arrows represent our growing up as a species, our awakening consciousness, and our concern and care for the well-being of all life. As the yellow arrows come into the time of great sorrow, they provide the uplift for a great transition. So, if we are to realize a great transition... It will require humanity to grow into our maturity and awaken our compassion and awareness so we can create a movement of movements. That means you and me and all of us showing up for life on earth. All three pathways are likely to continue to varying degrees. The question is, which one will guide us into the future, and which one will your actions support?
0: What I get when I watch that is all three pathways are happening now. And you can see places like China, very authoritarian, you know, they're doing facial recognition on everybody. If you jaywalk, you get in trouble. And Then there are, you and I are perhaps shooting some yellow arrows. And then there's all these people who, just want to do little bitsy-witsy incremental change or no change at all. Every time there's a school shooting, oh, no, we can't really change anything. Or, you know, we can't stop mining coal or drilling for oil. And they spend millions of dollars on disinformation to try to uh, convince people that they're two sides to this issue and that the science isn't settled. That's right. Now,
1: this is a time of just... Profound confusion, turbulence, breakdown, unraveling. And it has been predictable. I've been writing about the unraveling coming in this decade, oh, for 40 years or more. So it's, it's something that we could anticipate emerging given the the driving trends I, I mentioned at the outset. So here we are as a species, uh, and it's a time of profound, in my estimation, initiation. And we are being asked by the forces that we have unleashed ourselves. We're doing this to ourselves We're being asked to go from our adolescence and into our early adulthood. And I've gone around the earth for the last 40-some years and giving talks. And often, while I will start a talk by asking an audience in different parts of the world, if you look at the human family, what life stage are we in? Are we in a toddler stage, an adolescent stage? an adult or an elder stage. And I ask people not only to raise their hands often, but to stand up for their point of view. Take a stand for how you see humanity. And I'll ask, well, how many feel that we're in a toddler stage? About 5% or so will stand up.
0: Terrible twos. <laughs> yes, I've had a guy say that a few weeks ago. We're in our <laughs> <Yeah>. terrible twos.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> then I ask, well, how about the adolescent stage? How many people feel that we're in our adolescence as a species? And overwhelmingly, two thirds to three quarters of every audience I've asked around the world immediately stands up and they said, Yes, we're behaving like teenagers, like adolescents. And then I say, Well, look, this is good news. What? Yes, this is good news because the next step beyond our adolescence is our early adulthood. But to get into our early adulthood, we go through a time of initiation. And virtually everyone can speak to their own adolescence and say, wow, this was hard, this is difficult uh, for me to move through these years and move into my early adulthood. So this is a time of profound initiation that we're going through right now. And I'd like to uh, ask you, Rick, to play then the next video about our time of initiation.
0: Okay, I will. And let me just say before I do that that, Not all teenagers make it through adolescence. Some die of drug overdoses or suicide, or they end up in jail, or they end up damaging themselves severely in ways that handicap them for life. So it's not a done deal.
1: That's right. Very important. There's no guarantees we're going to make it through this time of transition.
0: I'm getting ready for the next video. Great turning. Which is what? It's a transition we're in. We're in it now. It's a transition we're learning so much. In science and in grassroots community building, it's not something we do instead of the collapse.
1: It's something that can guide us through it. My preposition
0: these days is through Honey, we're going to have to go through this. The opportunity of this time is for us to evaluate and reassess our priorities as a species. We need to look at what our relationships are to each other, to our families, to our community, and really assess our values.
1: We've arrived at a species-level conversation, our species, and we need to own this to find a path forward. We have entered an extraordinarily rare moment in humanity's collective journey. The path for generations to come will depend on people alive today. We cannot predict where humanity will go from here for one simple reason. Our future depends on our individual and collective consciousness and the choices that emerge from that consciousness. There's the theme that you brought up earlier, Rick, our consciousness, how we see and appreciate the world, as well as in a reflective way, ourselves. And are we awakening to our higher potentials and possibilities or not? Our future in many ways depends upon waking up and seeing that we are Not only biological beings, but we're a part of a living universe. We're biocosmic beings. And we'll talk about that as an uplift in a bit. But right now, what I would say two key factors for our uh, evolution are, first of all, are we growing up, just maturing as a species? We just talked about that. Uh, Can we move into our early adulthood, move beyond the reckless years of our adolescence, We're recklessly destroying the ecology of life on the planet. Can we move beyond the kind of superficial view of life beneath the uh, kind of materialism and consumerism of our current, current culture? Move beyond role models that are, let's say, sports stars, music idols, movie stars, and so on. Can we move to a deeper level of recognition of the nature of life and a journey that we're on. One challenge is simply growing up as a species. Another is what you mentioned at the outset, and that is waking up. Can we wake up to not only our thinking brain, but to the reflective consciousness that we all embody? And that you mentioned Einstein. Our bodies are carriers of this larger awareness, this larger knowing that connects us with the ecology of life. So the challenge now is to wake up to who we are and then to grow into that as a species. As a species, not simply individuals, but collectively mature and grow into that. What an extraordinary time that we're living in right now. What an amazing invitation of transformation and transition is being offered
0: to us. Yeah. And one good point about the growing up as a species is that we are all connected you may remember that the, the tm movement was doing experiments where they would try to get large groups of people to meditate together and there are various theories about how if one percent of the population were to do this or if Even the square root of 1% of the population were, it would change collective consciousness. So not everybody would have to do such things, which is unrealistic to expect. And there were some studies which seemed to show statistical significance that, in fact, when we got seven or 8,000 people together meditating, there would be a drop in crime and an improvement in in economic factors and so on. So a a rising tide lifts all boats. I kind of feel like even though the numbers of people on the earth engaging in spiritual pursuits are small, they are growing, but they're small relatively, they perhaps have an influence much greater than their numbers. And maybe one reason for explaining that is that if you can work at a more fundamental level, you have more leverage. The molecular level is more powerful than the material, or the, the gross material, and the atomic level is more powerful than the molecular. So at the level of consciousness itself, the most fundamental level, doing something there could have a much bigger impact than just trying to do stuff on the surface. And that to me has always been a sort of a source of possible optimism.
1: Yes. So in physics and systems theory, there are insights that have great relevance right now, directly relevant to what you were just speaking about. And it is when a system becomes turbulent, When it loses the coherence of the past, has yet to find its pathway into the future, and the in between time, when things are unraveling, when things are breaking down, that's a very high potential time for transformation. And small inputs into a system that's in great turbulence, the coherence of those small inputs, the resonance of those small inputs, can Permeate throughout the system and help reconfigure it very rapidly, very quickly. When in prior years, when it was a system that was really solidified in its, let's say, materialism, consumerism, and so on, it couldn't have that impact. But as we break down, it's a time of freeing up and finding new pathways ahead.
0: Yeah. Maybe you could give some examples. One a simple analogy that comes to mind is. Jello, when you've made jello and it's all warm and liquidy and all, you can pour it into any shaped mold, and it'll take that shape. But if it's already molded, then you can't. If it's rigid, so perhaps turbulence is a is a malleable condition in which things can move in directions they wouldn't be able to if everything was stagnant or settled. Is that a good way of suggesting it?
1: Yes. I seldom speak about this, but I'm getting old enough now that I venture out. But in the early 1970s, I had an opportunity at the Stanford Research Institute for a three-year period to be a subject in their parapsychology experiments. And there were two kinds of experiments. There, it was receiving, remote viewing, and then sending, psychokinesis. And I learned a tremendous amount about the ecology of consciousness in the laboratory, I think very much in keeping with the kinds of things you were just saying earlier. And what I found was that if we come to life with a feeling of separation, I'm here and the world's out there and whatever's going to happen, I have to mobilize energy here and push it out there. That doesn't work. In physics, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so if we start pushing on the world, the world's going to push back, and instead of connection, we get existential separation. However, if we start with the understanding that's now widespread in quantum physics. The universe is a unified whole. That's just the way it is. It's a unified system. It's not only unified, it's an arising and emergent system. It's a regenerative universe. So as the physicist David Bohm said, the universe is a unified whole in flowing movement. Now, how can we relate to it then? Well, instead of pushing on it, we can go and dance with it. So domination doesn't work, but dancing does and so given the understanding of the universe coming now out of physics and out of laboratory experiments like i participated in for three years we can begin to shift our understanding and our intention and our consciousness from one of domination which is widespread in a materialistic universe to dancing which is awakening now in the context of a living universe. So I'm wondering, could we play that next video regarding a living universe? Have you ever had the experience of seeing a delicate aliveness in the world? Have you ever looked at a flower The space around you and seen a subtle glow, a luminosity, and felt a deep kinship with all of existence? Have you ever experienced a feeling of oneness with the world around you, a feeling of communion with the whole universe? Many people assume that we live in a universe comprised of dead matter and empty space. And this is truly a dark night of the soul, if that is the kind of world that we inhabit. Fortunately, ancient wisdom and modern science are coming together and they're revealing the universe in a new way. Instead of dead at the foundation, it is increasingly viewed as a living system in its totality. And certainly at the foundation of all humanity and all of our lives and our life experience is the direct experience of being alive. And it is this experience of profound aliveness that we share with all creatures and all humans. Sometimes I will say to nature, surprise me. And within a few moments, I will see the flight of a bee, the architecture of a flower, there is an astonishing degree of beauty and design in nature's creations. This is an extraordinary shift from seeing the universe as dead at the foundations and we're separate beings in this flatland of a material universe to recognizing, well, only 5% of the known universe is the material universe that includes our bodies and the stars and planets around us. 95% of the known universe is now recognized as invisible. We can't see it, but it is there. And we can now begin to open with our awakening to aliveness that we all carry within ourselves to the 95% of the universe that goes beyond us. I had the great privilege of co-authoring a book with Joseph Campbell, as you mentioned, Rick. And in an interview one time, Campbell was asked, well, aren't people seeking meaning in their lives? Isn't that what people want is meaning? And surprisingly, he said, no. He said, what people are looking for is the direct experience of being alive. People want to know, they, they want to feel it in their bones and their bodies. This is life and I feel it. And what gives us that experience? Well, being in nature, for example, brings that experience. Connecting with other living beings, whether it's animals or pets, flowers, Nature around us, it brings that. Relationships, where there's a loving relationship and we feel it in our hearts. Making music, that is a direct experience of expressing, uh, it can be, our aliveness. So there are many ways of encountering the direct experience of being alive. And importantly, they don't cost much. They're mostly free. And if we need to move from a materialistic universe that's over-consuming the earth to a universe that is alive and invites us to grow into that sense of aliveness, that's not going to cost a whole lot. And that's really important in enabling us to make this transition to our greater maturity.
0: Yeah, I mean, my daily routine involves walking in the woods for two hours while listening to things, preparing for backup, coming home and doing things at my computer. And you know, it's very simple. I don't need a lot of entertainment and all, because I think part of it is, it's not only that what I do is interesting to me, but there's a baseline of fulfillment that abides regardless of what I do or don't do. Yes. Irene says, though, I'm addicted to my computer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, something that we all share. People recognize, well, well, of course I'm alive, Well, here, I am here, but are we in touch with how precious that aliveness is and the extent to which in a quantum universe that's unified with itself, when we get in touch with our inner aliveness and we touch into the aliveness of the universe, a light goes on. And that's the light of the light of awakening. Uh, we wake up and say, "Whoa! I'm a part of a larger living system. How do I grow into that larger aliveness?" And so, what's happening now as we make this transition? From a dead to a living universe is, first of all, it's changing how we regard life around us. Secondly, it's changing how we regard ourselves. We're not only biological beings, we are also a part of the cosmos and its aliveness. So we are inherently... Biocosmic beings that's who we already are We don't have to manufacture that that's the nature of reality We are biocosmic beings. Well then what are we doing here? What kind of journey are we on? Is it to consume more stuff trying to make ourselves happy? No the roots' way beyond that. The invitation from the universe is we're learning how to live in a living universe. Now, that is an infinite journey. That's an extraordinary journey, learning to live in a living universe. And that's what we're being called to do as we wake up and grow up in this new world.
0: When you say the universe is alive, as you were saying earlier, let's take an example of something that appears not to be alive, like a rock. But if you actually look at the rock microscopically enough, you see this marvelous crystalline structure, perhaps, and then you see things going on at the chemical level, the molecular level, that couldn't be random or accidental, no way. And that evidence, a field of intelligence of which laws of nature arise as impulses, which govern the functioning of everything, which orchestrate the, the functioning of everything. So in that sense, everything seems alive, the sidewalk, a tree, everything. If you think about it, there's stuff going on in things that we take for granted that boggles the mind if you actually fully perceive or appreciate what was happening.
1: Indeed. i like to say that, and this comes out of uh, physics as well, that aliveness is both foundational and emergent. Yes. Uh, So, at the foundation of existence... This universe emerged from a pinpoint about 14 billion years ago, a pinpoint smaller than an atom. It burst into existence and it now has over 2 trillion galaxies, true trillion galaxies, each galaxy containing a 100 billion or more star systems. So, Here it is, an extraordinary system has emerged. At the foundation, some life force was there to give it the burst of energy that allowed it to flare forth into existence. And now it continues to grow. And not only is it growing materially, it's growing the fabric of space-time that holds it. This is a miracle how it's developing. So aliveness is both foundational and emergent. So people like you, Rick, and me, we are emergent beings that draw from the larger aliveness of the living universe. When I say we're learning to live in a living universe, that's an extraordinary journey. Now, one way of appreciating the depth of this is that science now understands, even though there are two trillion galaxies out there, there's an extraordinary distance between here we are right now to the magnitude of the universe as a whole. But physicists now say there is more smallness within us than there is bigness beyond us. We think, well, if I just go down to the level of my skin and such, I'm getting down to the basics of reality. No, there is more smallness within than there is bigness beyond. And we, and this is the role of consciousness, wake up. Wake up to the depth, to the scope, the reach, the nature of the aliveness that surrounds us, that gives birth to us, and into which we are growing.
0: There's some cool movies that you can watch on YouTube. People could check. uh, Search for Powers of Ten. You see these. there's several different versions where maybe it starts with somebody lying on a picnic blanket or something, and it starts (laughs) to zoom out, and it just goes out and out and out by Powers of Ten to the limits of the universe and then it zooms in again and then it starts to going into the small by powers of 10 deeper and deeper and deeper and as you just said it goes in further in the small direction than it went out in the big direction it's 10 to the larger number in the small direction so we're kind of in the middle i have these conversations and debates with friends who don't get this aliveness business or this everything is is permeated with or swimming in an ocean of intelligence. And I, I, to me, it seems so obvious and we go back and forth. It's kind of fun. Um, but I think it's a real handy way of looking at things because like we said in the beginning, if you think the universe is dead, then it's natural to exploit it, use it up. And when we die, who cares? Cause we ha- we will cease to exist and uh, good luck with the coming generations. But you know, if you see it as live, then, anything you do to it you're doing to a living being and you are intimately connected with that living being so you're doing it to yourself
1: that's right you said well we're sort of in the middle ground and indeed we are physics says that we're a little bit more than halfway up that ruler from the very large to the very small and in fact we're giants in the cosmic scale of things This is fascinating. We're being transformed now by our own science and our own knowledge. I'd like to go to another dimension of uplift that's happening uh, right now. There are many things. There's the uplift of uh, consciousness, the uplift of, of reconciliation movements that are happening around the world. But a third area of uplift is what's happening for you and I right now, and it's using the tools of communication, to connect ourselves with one another in ways that
0: have never been possible before. Because okay, so we're it, going to be talking about the internet and stuff, right? The internet, yes. Okay, before we launch into that, I just want to throw in a, okay, yes, please. a quote from the Kato Upanishad. Brahman, or the totality, is described as Mahato mahatomahian, which means it's smaller than the smallest and bigger than the biggest. And that doesn't mean that it's really, really small or really, really big. It means it it transcends spatial dimensions altogether. But it's said to be that which contains the whole universe, like a drop in an ocean. And then the Upanishad keeps coming back to, and that thou art. That's what we are. So when we refer to ourselves as being somewhere in the middle, size-wise, we're referring to our bodies, but we're not our bodies. We are Brahman. We are the totality living through a body. And yes. the mosquito is the totality living through a mosquito body and so on and so forth. But we can get to a stage in our development where we identify predominantly as that totality and secondarily as a limited being. And then we, we're we sort of a walking, breathing universe. Anyway. Absolutely.
1: Well said. <laughs> well said, Rick. Thank you. <laughs> All um, right.
0: You wanted to get into the communications thing.
1: People say, well, okay, the aliveness, and in my experience, about half the people I encounter say, well, of course it's alive. How could it be otherwise? Look at the beauty and the and the architecture of creation and so on. And uh, I can be in a circle of five or ten people and not say anything and then pretty soon someone's going to chime in and say well it's you're crazy if you think this is alive of course they show me you know it's just dead matter and empty space and the conversation is so juicy so generative because people that see and experience and know the aliveness they go for the walks in nature they take time to meditate and so on It's in your bones. We are that aliveness, as you say so clearly, uh, Rick. So we're in a process now of making that transition from, well, you're crazy if you think it's alive to, no, you're crazy if you think it's not, if you think it's dead. So this is a wonderful time, I think, a generative time to be alive.
0: And there's a number of things we're going to still get into here, but you were starting to suggest the internet we wouldn't be doing this right now, you and I, without the internet. That's right. Um, so the internet is sort of a, a global nervous system of sorts. You know, there are other ways in which we're all connected, but this is one in which we can be connected visually and audibly and and so on. And it's obviously democratizing knowledge and information. It's also enabling the spread of a great deal of confusion and misinformation. That perhaps fits into your three themes that you outlined in in that video. The internet can be used for authoritarianism. It can be used to sow chaos or it can be used to infuse greater wisdom into the world. And I guess it depends on what we choose to put our attention on and and to generate or create.
1: That's right. The tools of uh, communication are neutral. They can be used in each of those three ways you just described so well. And part of my work uh, over decades now, has been to look at uh, both television and the internet, and how that is transforming how we relate to uh, one another and the world. I'd like to just speak for a minute here about the internet, because it's an area that I'm working with right now. And people say, well, How can we come together as a human family? How can we find one another as a human species and come to a new consensus, a new consciousness? And I say, well, we have the technologies, the tools that will help us achieve that. And I speak about the Internet, but I want to quote something from... Dog Hammarskjöld, who in the 1950s was one of the main Secretary Generals of the United Nations. And he was asked, he said. I think he was uh, there
0: when Khrushchev pounded his shoe on the table, wasn't he? I
1: I think, (laughs) yes, he well could have been. I remember that. He was asked about the uh, United Nations well, why hasn't it done more? You know, it just creates confusion and the kinds of issues that we just spoke about here. And he said the function of the United Nations, as he saw it, was not to take humanity to heaven, but to save humanity from hell of our own making. And here we are. We're in that situation right now. I'm not saying the Internet is going to take us to a new heaven, but it could well save us from going to a hell of our own making. Well, how could you do that? And I I pick up a a cell phone and I say to people, look, two-thirds of the people on this planet have one of these in their hands, two-thirds. By the end of this decade, it will be three-quarters of the people on the planet have one of these. And I say, you hold the future in your hands because as soon as you open up a browser, as soon as you open up access to, let's say, a program like this, you're opening up To the World Wide Web, as it was originally called, the World Wide Web and the potential connect with people around the planet. Now, Rick, you and I both know that China has its firewalls to keep people out or keep a lot of people in. So does Russia. But more broadly, the Internet connects with people around the earth right now. And so if we would simply mobilize those tools of technology, we can begin to achieve a new level of communication and consciousness. We're not separate beings isolated by geography anymore or isolated necessarily by a society like dictatorships and so on. Those are leaky systems. And we can come together together as a species and find a new consciousness and a new consensus about where we're going to go from here can we find reconciliation and a sense of unity in our our collective journey that takes us into this extraordinary possibility that well we're living beings and we're learning to live in a living universe what an amazing invitation for evolution that is surrounding us and we have the tools right now. If we will use these, and that's something I'm exploring, if we use these tools, we can begin to come together as a human community. And we may not reach a heaven, but we can avoid the hell that's under, that's developing right now. This is a very practical way of moving and integrating the evolution of consciousness and the evolution of the very practical dimensions that we know in our everyday lives.
0: Yeah, and uh, that's what I'm doing. I guess with BatGap, I'm using the internet to do this. You are. When I was a snarky teenager, I used to sometimes say, well, uh, freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. But now everybody (laughs) more or less owns one, or if they want to. Now we own one! (laughs) Yes! Uh, And you're doing it. But as you say, it's a mixed blessing because anybody can put out anything. I mean, there's been so much disinformation spreading around. And there was a big study recently by Harvard, Brown, Microsoft and Brigham and Women's Hospital that showed that about 319,000 Americans died who wouldn't have if all eligible people had gotten the COVID vaccine. But there was a lot of it misinformation spreading about which dissuaded them from doing so so that has obviously um, lethal consequences then there's all these issues about well should Twitter shut down somebody's account for saying things that might harm people or should Facebook censor posts and and all and, and do they have the right to do that I mean these are issues that we're grappling with I think as we learn how to use this tool and have it be not so much a mixed blessing
1: well, we hold the future in our hands. So, right now, it's corporate America that's telling us how to use the tool. And what I'm suggesting is that we can become empowered in ways we hadn't imagined until recently. If we come together as a species, that's a new superpower for the future. And in my estimation the next great superpower will not be China or a collection of nations. The next great superpower will be us as ordinary individuals around the earth that come together and use the internet in particular as a tool of collective communication and consciousness and we begin to speak the future
0: that we want together. Yeah. So we're on the verge of that. Or at least I guess you're referring to people who were saying the things that you and I are trying to say today. Because as a species, we say many things and we are, we're of many minds. And here just yes. in the United States alone, there's tremendous polarization and yes. conflict over so many different issues. So maybe it's sort of may the best man win kind of a scenario. You know, like you said, with your arrows, it could go this way or it could go that way. And that's and right. And the very tool that we're using to have this conversation could be used to impose greater authoritarianism, or the tool could become completely inoperable if enough chaos takes place, all the various servers could start breaking down due to electrical outages and and things, and then then we'll really be out of touch with one another.
1: Yes, that's right. The Internet was designed, as you know, in the case of nuclear war, there would be workarounds. So even if one area was shattered and in ruins, there would be ways to get workarounds so we still could communicate with one another. And that is really a part of my hope, is that there are workarounds to allow us to come together as a human family. And what will prevail will be the consciousness, the compassion, the aliveness, the sense of possibility that we're working for as a species.
0: There's a Vedic saying, which is kind of encouraging, which is that um, that which is closest to truth lasts longest. So if that's true, uh, what was it Martin Luther King said? That the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yes. You know, So sometimes in dire predicaments, we may feel that all hope is lost and that we're all going to hell in a handbasket. But if quotes like that hold merit, then in the big picture, in the long run, things are going to work out.
1: That's right. I feel we can do this. That's the key thing that I say to people that say there's, we're doomed. There are global surveys that have been done, and they found that of young people, 18 to 25, 56% say we are doomed as a species. They've given up. And I'm saying don't give up. We're just getting started moving into our early adulthood as a human family. So it's time to step up and move ahead. Use these tools of transformation. Work into the heartfelt aliveness that we each carry into the world. Bring that into the world as a transforming capacity. So if we mobilize these capacities, both invisible and visible, we have a future, an extraordinary future ahead of us.
0: Yeah. Here's a quote from your book from Martin Luther King Jr. He said that to realize justice in human affairs, injustice must be exposed with all of the tension its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. Yes. A lot of times when various scandals break or corruption is exposed and things like that, it's a good thing. We have to tell
1: the truth. The first thing we have to do if we're going to be in a transformational process, we have to tell the truth about what's going on. And there's a lot of distortion and lies about the nature of what is happening. But nonetheless, we have to keep telling the truth, telling the truth. And with that, we can come to a new level of understanding and acceptance. And with the acceptance comes the potential for reconciliation. The rich, the poor, gender reconciliation, reconciliation across race and ethnicity, geography, and so on future generations versus current generations. I mean, look at Greta Thunberg. She is saying, you're consuming it all right now. You're not going to leave anything for the younger generation. So we have to bring these issues into the healing light of public awareness before they can be accepted and then transformed. And then we can move on into our early adulthood as a human family.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, Chuck Todd was talking to Kellyanne Conway, and he said something about, well, these are the facts of the matter. And she said, well, here's some alternative facts. And he he said, wait a minute, alternative facts? What are you talking about? So, you know, when you say tell the truth, obviously people have different views on what that is. Mm. But there's another Vedic quote, which is nice here, which is that satyame Vijayate, which means truth alone is victorious. And again, it's one of those eventually kind of things. But <laughs> hopefully in the end, yeah. well, <laughs> Frodo wins the day.
1: Yes. This has been a delightful conversation. I've appreciated the wisdom you're bringing into this from your life experience. So this is, this is
0: really a pleasure to talk with you. Good. And we have more to go through, too, if, if you have time. Um, sure. When terrible things happen, like let's say Russia in, invades Ukraine, and we know how rough that's been. And now we're going to see famines because the wheat supply has been shut down. and That was 30% of the world's wheat right there. That's obviously some of the turbulence that you illustrated in your diagram. Do you see a silver lining somehow? Do you feel like, okay, we're going through this difficulty, but somehow in going through this, we're going to wise up? and things will be better. Maybe Putin will disappear and Russia will become a more enlightened place and we'll all get along, and that kind of thing.
1: Well, I think we're going to go through an absolutely devastating time in the decades ahead, I really do. Right now we have uh, nearly 8 billion people on the Earth, and scientists estimate the carrying capacity of the Earth is roughly 2 billion people living in middle class european lifestyles two billion people explain what carrying capacity means the carrying capacity means that the regenerative ability of the the land and the oceans to year by year grow the food have the fish and so on it can support roughly two billion people
0: when did we last have two billion people on the planet
1: when I was born, there was just a little over 2 billion people. So in the space of one lifetime, we have gone from roughly 2 billion and we're approaching 8 billion. The estimates are by the end of the of the century, we're going to be approaching 10 billion people.
0: And so we've so, been draining our bank account, our resource bank account for the right. last been over the century.
1: Yeah. Well said, we're draining the bank account. They we're overdrawing on what the generative capacity of the earth can create. So if you think about that, I just cannot imagine the possibility that something like six, seven, eight billion people might die off in this century. How can that be? Well famine and disease, we're seeing pandemics now beginning to grow, and as as the world heats up as global warming continues it 's releasing new toxins, new viruses into the atmosphere, and so on and I think we 're going to have just a plague of pandemics we 're going to have extraordinary amount of disease, an extraordinary amount of famine, every degree centigrade that the earth heats up, fifteen percent lower productivity of the land and if we go up by three degrees centigrade that's a 45 percent degree decrease in the productivity of agriculture on the earth we can't feed ourselves hardly right now what happens if there's an enormous cutback in productivity at the same time there's still a growing increase in the number of people we're in for an extraordinary time of correction if you will where we as a species match the resources of the Earth and its
0: regenerative capacity. And so then what? And what happens if sea levels rise a couple of feet and all the world's coastal cities have to be evacuated and you have hundreds of millions of people trying to go somewhere in the middle of droughts and famines?
1: That's right. There's roughly 3 billion people that live around the equatorial regions of the planet. And those equatorial regions are going to become increasingly uninhabitable. In Pakistan, there are temperatures regularly reaching 120 degrees Fahrenheit, 120 degrees. Now, that's at the very, very margins of what people can tolerate.
0: New Delhi has been like that in recent months. Yes. So we're
1: already approaching portions of the earth becoming uninhabitable, and then people are going to start migrating to the more resource-favored and, and climate-favored portions of the earth. Now, it only took a million people to destabilize Europe. The movement of a million people into Europe it was, has been profoundly destabilizing of the civic structures and so on. What happens when there's not one million but three billion people moving north and south to more resource and climate-favored regions. That's what you're talking about. And that's what we're going to start experiencing that very, very soon. It's already underway as a trickle. It's going to turn into a rush. But then people say, well, look, we're doomed. Uh, Well, no, we need to look at how we learn. And trauma is our teacher. The sorrow, the grief, the loss of these years—that's our teacher. We're doing this to ourselves. No one came and imposed this upon us, but rather we have created these conditions ourselves. And we have the capacity—I feel—to unravel these circumstances and move into a more habitable relationship with the Earth and with the uh, well-being of all life.
0: Let's think of some traumas and what we've learned from them. I mean, we have, let's say, the Civil War, World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two. Did we learn? Maybe we did. I mean, obviously, the racial situation is much better today than it was prior to the Civil War. And then we had World War II. Now we get along with Germany and Japan. But then we have a whole lot of nuclear weapons we didn't have before. That's right. So I'm just wondering, how many steps forward are we taking for every few steps backward?
1: Well, various things. Think about this gender equality. We have awakened to the role of women on the earth. Researcher after research is saying if we want a habitable earth, we need to empower women. They need to be given the opportunity of education and and participation in the affairs of the world and life. And that is beginning to happen. A transformation that's been really thousands of years in the making is now happening in this generation. So there's an immense transformation and learning that has been underway. The same is Black Lives Matter, for example. We're beginning to take seriously that the white population, the men like ourselves, white men, are going to be in a minority soon. And we need to accept and work with the reality of racial diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, and so on. And we're beginning to do that. So it isn't a done deal. And as, uh, as Hammersholt said about the United Nations, he was not expecting to create a heaven on earth, but to avoid creating a hell on earth. And if we can do that, if we can work our way through this time of extraordinary challenge and difficulty and see it as a maturing experience for the whole human family. I think we have a promising future ahead of us.
0: Yeah, and I guess we're sort of doing it. It's always by fits and starts, and there are always people digging their heels in and resisting every little bit of change. But somehow or other, we do seem to be progressing. I'm not real familiar with the work of Steven Pinker, but I've I've often heard him quoted as Itemizing all these really good things that we've got going for us now that we didn't in the past. It can seem pretty depressing and dire when you watch the news and stuff, but many things are better.
1: That's right. It's an open system. There's potential here. There's possibility. A lot of people, like I just mentioned, the 56% of youth on the planet saying we're doomed. Well, Well, let's open this up and move beyond materialism and consumerism of Western society and see the world freshly with new eyes and recognize that if we're learning to live in a living universe, that's an entirely new and different journey that we have been on in the past. So if we're going to be successful, we need to reframe I think, how we understand what we're doing here and who we are as biocosmic beings and where we're going. We're learning to live in a living universe.
0: One thing I liked about your book is that as you went through the coming decades and um, sketched out what might possibly happen (laughs) in these decades, on the one hand, there was this collapse and breakdown taking place and all the dire details of that. But at the same time, you'd weave into those chapters good things that would be happening as people woke up more and more and hopefully counterbalanced That's you right. know, the yellow arrows from your diagram. And you have a whole section in your book about seven uplifting forces. And at, yes. some, at some point in our conversation, perhaps we should go through those to uh, break the bummer mood that we might be creating here. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Let's
1: get serious here. How do challenging and how critical our situation is it's not a time for complacency it's a time to step up and be in the transformational process itself and as hard to do without seeing the uplift potential that surrounds us and those uplift factors by the way let me just mention the book choosing earth is available online for free our situation is so dire. I've said, look, I'll just make this available for free as a PDF, something that everyone can print out for themselves if they want. I'll make want. sure to link
0: to that on your Batcat page. Yeah. yeah, good. I'll
1: I'll do that. You mentioned the what are these uplifting factors? For heaven's sakes, well, we've already spoken about a number of them. First of all, aliveness, recognizing that what we're seeking is the direct experience of being alive. And that is something that's free. It's already present. It's already there and available to us. And before you skim through them, I want to comment okay. on some of them. Oh, like please. For, for instance, <laughs>
0: aliveness. One thing I always experienced with my meditation practice from the time I learned it was that I felt like as I was doing it, I was being infused with more aliveness. I could just feel my brain waking up and my body kind of being refreshed and regenerated. And then when I would come back into activity, I felt like I had greater resources with which to infuse more of that aliveness into my life or into my environment. It's kind of like to use a simple analogy, if you wanted to go shopping and you didn't have any money in your pockets, you wouldn't be very productive. But if you go to the bank first and withdraw some resources, then you can shop. So I felt like I was dipping into my inner resources and then, being more successful in in the marketplace of life
1: yes golly thank you (laughs) i like that (laughs) okay
0: so there's one
1: it's all around us it's within us and it's available to us and we need to recognize that and and as you say just bring it in bring it down bring it through
0: Um, And we all do have, and I'm just talking about myself here, we all do have an unlimited reservoir of potential deep within, and we all have the capacity to tap into it. We just have to find out how.
1: That's right. We have to find out how. We have to recognize it's there and then begin our exploration and discovery. That's an inside job we're each called to do for ourselves and for the world.
0: Yeah I mean if you think about a forest for instance like let's say the Amazon rainforest it's green and verdant by virtue of the fact that all the plants are rooted in this very fertile soil and they get plenty of rain and stuff and if it were looking not so green it wouldn't help to spray paint it green or anything we'd have to improve the its ability to draw nourishment each individual plant's ability to draw nourishment through its roots yeah. and as many of us as possible on this earth as many humans as possible need to learn how to draw forth that inner nourishment and then the whole forest of humanity will look more green
1: that's right other uplift factors mentioning just a few the next one up on my list is uh, consciousness and we've been speaking about consciousness throughout there's thinking consciousness where we think that who we are is what we think and we've been living in thinking consciousness for a long while and you and i are now talking about a reflective consciousness where we have the ability to look back and see ourselves. And one of the key understandings I like to share with people is who our name as a species. We think we're Homo sapiens. Actually, the technical name of who we are is Homo sapiens sapiens. Now, to be sapient means to be wise or knowing. And to be Homo sapiens sapiens means to be doubly wise or doubly knowing, not only to know that we're here, but know that we know. American Indians, they have three miracles that they often speak about, or they do speak about. The first miracle is that there's anything here at all. We've talked about this, the living universe. The first miracle is that the universe is here at all. The second miracle is that there are living things here, plants and animals, and we can see the life around us. You were just speaking about that. The third miracle is the recognition that we know we are here. Not only we see we're here, but we know that we know that we're here. And knowing that we know is anchoring. It brings that capacity for recognition and therefore action within us. So... That's an extraordinary capacity, and it moves beyond just a reflective consciousness into a more compassionate engagement with life, where our life, we feel it in the context of meeting others, and that's a compassionate consciousness. So consciousness evolves as we evolve in our understanding of that. And I'm sure, I'm sure Rick, as a teacher of consciousness, you have things you want to add right here.
0: Well, as you were saying that, I was thinking of what Jesus said on the cross. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. So the guys who were nailing him on the cross, he could see that they weren't really conscious of the implications of what they were doing. And you could perhaps extend that out to Vladimir Putin or Bolsonaro burning down the rainforest or people doing these horrible, destructive, short-sighted things. They are just shut down in their consciousness. They are operating out of such a limited perspective. They don't know what they're doing. I remember Europe offered Bolsonaro a whole lot of money to stop burning down the rainforest. And, and he said, eh, plant more trees in your own continent. You know, We're just going to mind our own business here. So there's a stupidity, a, a numbness, a, an ignorance right. that prevails so often.
1: So that consciousness is critical. It's critical to move beyond the thinking consciousness into the reflective consciousness that says, let me look at this freshly, recognizing I'm a part of a larger system of aliveness. And that's transformative. And you're speaking about that so directly. So, mentioning other uplifting factors. So, we saw the power of aliveness, the power of consciousness. The third one is the power of communication. And it's phenomenal. I feel... That if we look at human evolution, it was our ability to communicate that got us from awakening hunter-gatherers roughly 10,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age to the verge of a planetary civilization today. We communicate, 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 and at each stage... We have grown, we've expanded uh, the sphere of connection with the rest of life, with one another. And here we are at the edge of a planetary civilization. We're not really there yet, but we have the tools of communication, the Internet and such, that can take us over and into our understanding that we are here together, and we can communicate together, and we can choose together our pathway into the future. And that's why it is choosing Earth. We can do this. We can choose the Earth as our home. So there's the third great uplifting factor.
0: And on that one, obviously, yeah. it's more than just the technological means to communicate. We've we've got that pretty good shape now, but it's having the somehow the wisdom to be able to understand and and connect with each other. My wife and I often talk about this. You're talking to somebody, maybe even a friend, and they're going on and on and on and on and about themselves. And then finally, you try to say something about what's going on in your life. They say, well, it's getting late. Got to (laughs) go. It's like that old saying, you know, me, me, me. Okay, enough about me. What do you think about me? So. we have to somehow be more interested in each other and more interested in understanding what makes the other person tick. What's their perspective? Okay, let's say I have certain feelings about gun control. Okay, why do people who feel so differently than I feel the way they do? And is there some kind of bridge that we could meet at to actually communicate about the issue? And there are some kind of interesting organizations and movements attempting to do just that there's this black guy who is actually made a career of collecting Ku Klux Klan robes by befriending the people and then communicating with them human to human and convincing them to leave the Ku Klux Klan. That's just one example, but we need more of that.
1: Yes. Well, curiosity and consciousness go together in my estimation. If you're really awake, To the world it becomes a magical place it's an interesting place it isn't all figured out no it's just alive it's happening it's real and then curiosity well who are you that you are here doing what you and how is that happening let's look at the architecture of this living system the universe that we inhabit so curiosity is a key part of that so thanks for bringing that yeah
0: and perhaps that rests upon the first two points aliveness and uh And consciousness, you know, if you're more alive, more conscious, then you have that greater curiosity. That's right. And more passion about being communicative and so on.
1: That's right. All right. The next one on the list here is maturity. We've been talking about maturity. We have to grow up as a species, move beyond our adolescent behaviors and mindset and into, well, with maturity. One thing I love to acknowledge with maturity is freedom. There are certainly responsibilities when you become an adult, if you will. Work responsibilities, family responsibilities, and so on. But there is freedom as an adult that is not present when we're adolescents. And adolescents are pushing on the edges, give me the freedom, give me the freedom, but there has to be balance with responsibilities as well. But we are moving into a world of new freedoms that we have yet to really begin to explore. That's a part of maturation that I really appreciate.
0: Yeah, and freedom requires maturity because if, you, if you're if you not mature and you have too much freedom, then you end up creating all kinds of harm. <laughs>
1: We're looking at
0: Yeah, like 18-year-olds who are free to buy AR-14s or whatever they call those guys. AR-15. 15s. Yeah. And you try to change something about that and, Well, you're, you're challenging our freedoms. That's right. You could get me going on that topic, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, there's also a little thing in the Bill of Rights about the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How about those freedoms? It's a little bit hard to exercise those if you've been shot, I yes. would say. Yes. <sighs>
1: All right. And then the next one, Rick, let's kind of, in. <laughs> we'll work into this. The next uplifting factor is beyond maturity is reconciliation. To have the maturity, to see the integrity of life and the right to life that surrounds us. Not only other people have the right to their life that transcends ethnicity and race, gender, income, and so on. We all have this aliveness within us and reconciling ourselves to living in a world filled with expressions of aliveness, not only human aliveness, but the aliveness of plants and animals and the whole cosmic system. That's an extraordinary uh, challenge, but it's an extraordinary opportunity to, for uplift to take us into a new future possibility.
0: Yeah, there's another nice Vedic saying in that one. It's um uh... Vasudev Tukumbharam, I think it's pronounced, which is the world is my family. I think very few people view the world as their family. To quote Buck Mister Fuller, we're all passengers on spaceship Earth, and yeah. we've got to reconcile in order not to uh, destroy the only spaceship we have. That's right. I saw him speak incidentally back in uh, about nineteen seventy-one. It was a great opportunity. Let's hit a little bit more on reconciliation because okay, like, yeah. with, with climate change in particular. Aside from all the other problems that we can consider, there is no agreement that it even exists in the U.S. Congress. About half the politicians there won't admit that it does or that it's a serious problem. If you were, let's say, a a consultant to Washington, which I guess you have been in certain times of your life, how would you attempt to achieve some kind of reconciliation so we could get everybody on board with that particular issue, for instance?
1: I worked on a presidential commission in the early 1970s. It was on uh, population growth and the American future. And it was looking not only at the growth, uh, but also then the urbanization of American society over the next 30 years. And while on that commission, I wrote a paper as a uh, staff member for the commission members, and it was titled, The Poverty of Our Abundance. And it was, the idea was, what are we doing with the wealth that we have over the next three decades? Can we re-envision how to use our abundance in more creative and compassionate ways? I thought this was a, <laughs> a great idea, but the senior leaders of of the commission felt otherwise, and they wanted to fire me. But they couldn't given uh, government laws, and they just pushed me aside, basically uh, kept me out of the deliberative process. Now, I learned some things there. You don't push on a system like that. What we can do, though, is recontextualize it. And that's where the power of communication comes in. And it's happening right now, where a third may say, well, it's hoax. It's a big hoax to think that there's anything like climate change. And the other two-thirds says, you're wrong. This is an extremely important and identifiable and research possibility. And so the context, the political context, changes. So my approach is to say, work at the periphery, create a new context of understanding. Uh, That is something that we can do. Whereas if you go right into the heart of the beast, into the political process itself, that's really pushing against something that's going to push back politically And it's going to be hard to get traction. So that takes us then back to communication. Can we communicate our way into a transforming future, creating a new context of understanding and and consensus that will then permeate the political apparatus and give us a new pathway ahead?
0: Mm. Upton Sinclair said, you can't get a man to understand something if his salary depends upon his not understanding it. I I think that applies to politicians whose cash flow, which they have to spend a good portion of their time trying to raise, depends upon agreeing with the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. Earlier on, it was the tobacco industry Mm -hmm. and so on. Yes.
1: I experienced that directly, very, very directly.
0: But I think in their heart of hearts, they do understand it. I'm a little cynical in that regard. And they're just corrupt enough to talk the talk that they need to talk, even though they realize they're lying.
1: Yeah. I had the opportunity to do a study for the president's science advisor. Uh, This is in the mid-1970s. And they asked us, we want a fresh view of the future. Uh, Don't tell us what we already know. We know we have population problems, even energy problems and so on. Tell us what we don't know. What is going to happen in the future that could wipe us out from the blind side? A number of things were offered up to the president's science advisor in this year-long study. And among them was climate change. And bless their hearts, they said, well... We see this is happening, of course, but it's going to be 40 or so years, maybe even 50 years before it's going to have a major impact. So that's so far into the future, we don't have to worry about it now. Okay, now, 40 years after the the mid-1970s is now. Here we are. It's finally happened. And I've been watching decade by decade... To see these things happening and that are beginning to wipe us out from the blind side because we weren't paying attention. And the political apparatus is so focused on a short term political agenda, it's not stepping back to look at the world as a whole system and to pay attention at that scale. So we're seeing the consequences of a lack of consciousness and a lack of courage to take what we already see and stick with it. Not only, like the American Indians, seven generations into the future, pay attention, seven generations ahead. Well, this is pay attention one generation ahead. And we weren't doing it. And now we're experiencing the consequences of that lack of conscious attention. So this is, I'm hopeful that we're learning here, Rick, (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah i'm hopeful patanjali has a phrase in the yoga sutras which is avert the danger which has not yet come you know 40 years ago it's like changing the course of a river you know if you wait till the river gets to the ocean it's too late to do anything about the course of it but if you can go back to the very source of the river you know perhaps some little thing could change it off in a different direction of course this That's is right. just an analogy and it probably wouldn't work that way but no no it's, uh,
1: no that is how it works that is how it works We need to make these seemingly small course corrections right now, like the food that we eat, shift toward a more vegetarian diet, Uh, the clothes that we wear. I've been wearing the same shirt for a decade or more now. I hope Uh, you've
0: been washing it. (laughs)
1: it's time it's time for a wash, yeah I mean, I don't want to waste water, but <laughs> that's right got to be careful here, not too often yeah, the transportation reuse, I gave up my car, and so on it's all up for grabs, and if we the car, the food, the clothing as so our if we make these small changes, they add up. And if we're all doing that together, small little rivers become a huge ocean of transformation. And so that's what I'm I'm hopeful for.
0: Yeah, but now, unfortunately, the changes have to be much more radical because we've waited so long. That's right. Um, I just watched this whole Frontline documentary about... It was a three-part thing, and it was all about how Exxon had this research group in the 1970s, and they, the the research group said, "Well, climate change is coming; it could be catastrophic. We've got to do something." So they started thinking about alternative energies, and then some executives came in and just shut that down, got rid of that research group, and yeah. began spending millions of dollars to create obfuscation and doubt about
1: that's about right climate
0: change instead of actually doing something. That's right, um, and uh, you know now we're in in the pickle that we're in.
1: That's right. And not just Exxon, but Shell and other major, all they all were obfuscating yeah. and distorting. And and now we're paying the price of uh, the need for radical change in this decade.
0: This Some people decade. say they should be held accountable the way that tobacco companies have been yes. for billions of dollars. Although tobacco companies couldn't bring back all the people who died. And I don't think that the oil companies could eliminate all the damage that's happened. But right.
1: That's right. Now, Rick, this is the uplift section we're working oh, on. Oh, yes,
0: uplift, uplift, up, up, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Need to take okay. a happy pill.
1: <laughs> okay, the next one, if you're ready for it, is okay. community. Community. We're living in such fragmented, separate, isolated ways. So many people have their, their apartment, their house, and it's, they're living alone. They're not connected with their neighbors and so on. Right now, my wife and I are living in a co-housing community here in California. And that's a community of 60 people, roughly. 30 units, 60 people. We have common meals, typically two or three days a week. We eat together. We work on the landscaping together. We have a garden that grows a lot of the food that we use. We have a woodworking shop. We have a common house where we can gather together. We have a place for kids to play and so on. And so it's an integrated eco-village kind of setting. And what we're learning is our insights that could be transported to the world at large. The whole world could be an eco-village. The whole thing could be an eco-village where we have all of these small gatherings of of people and properties and they have a high degree of self-reliance and self-sufficiency So there's resilience at the local level, but then it grows out and builds out to the more regional and then global scale. So community, new kinds of community are critical, I feel, to our future.
0: And if you went to the Bioneers Conference, for instance, you'd see that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of organizations and initiatives and things that are going on that don't make the news. It's kind of inspiring to see all that. So there, there are things happening all over the world. That's right. There are invisible revolutions underway, as you
1: suggest, all around the world. And we have yet to uplift those into our collective consciousness so we can choose effectively new pathways ahead.
0: You know, earlier we were talking about phase transitions um, and how they are opportunities for change because everything is in flux. And um, one thing about phase transitions is that often you don't see them coming. The simple example is the boiling of water. It can be 99 degrees Celsius and doesn't look like anything much is happening and one more degree and it's boiling. So we never know how close we might be as as a society to certain abrupt changes.
1: Great example. I think we're getting close, Rick. I've been watching this develop, as I said, for about a half century. And boy, at a feeling level, there's a thinking level, I've done tremendous amounts of research. But as I speak with people around the community here, uh, and really through the internet now around the planet. Just seeing the agitation and the concern, the stress, the awareness that's awakening, I think we're approaching that place of the collective boiling point into a new configuration or the possibility of a new configuration for humanity.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Look what's just been happening. COVID was a big upset. Talk about choosing simplicity. It was imposed on a lot of people and they all went nuts, you know, wanting to have their movies and their travel and their restaurants and all this stuff that people are used to. Supply chains are breaking down and I don't know if they can be gotten back together properly. Jamie Dimon and Elon Musk both said within the last few days that we're on the brink of some kind of economic hurricane.
1: Hurricane, yes. So
0: there seems to be something coming.
1: What I've suggested in the scenarios uh, that I presented earlier is that we're in a time of unraveling now. Things are breaking down, they're coming apart, and if things unravel enough, they come apart enough, well then there's not enough to hold the whole thing together, and if it can't hold, it falls. And if we are in tremendous overshoot, far beyond what the the carrying capacity of the earth, it won't be just a small decline. It will be a great fall. I feel that's what's coming for us. Probably by the decade of the uh, 2030s, maybe sooner. But we're going to go from a time of unraveling to a time of severe breakdown, a great fall, and then the deep collapse of civilization on the earth. And that's predictable, I feel. And uh, we can anticipate that and work with that and move through that. And that brings us really in some ways to this last uplifting factor, which is simplicity, simplicity of living. And we already spoke about aliveness. And if we feel alive, making music, sharing food with one another, being in relationship with a loving and caring community, being in nature, all these things are essentially free. They're simple. Now, is that regress or progress? Well, I go to Arnold Toynbee, this extraordinary historian, wrote volume after volume on the history of the world. And he finally summarized these volumes of research and understanding in one principle. And he called it the law of progressive simplification, the law of progressive simplification. And he said the measure of maturity and advance in a civilization is expressed in its ability to simplify the material aspects of life and give more energy and attention to the non material aspects of life, the ones that we were just speaking about, so if we can advance uh, reconciliation uh, the humanities uh, and and so on and so on, if we can shift from a focus on materialism and consumerism and into With simplicity, choiceful simplicity, advancing our appreciation of these other dimensions of life, the non-material, that is a measure of a civilization's growth.
0: Yeah, if we can. I guess it's the big if. Because by Toynbee's definition, we're not a very mature society because we are extremely complex. And we have hugely complex systems of supply, you know, just-in-time supply chains and all that stuff baby formula has been big in the news recently because a factory had to be shut down in Michigan because it wasn't up to code or something. And all of a sudden there's this big shortage of baby formula and they're trying to fly it in from Zurich. And so there's so many things like that. I mean, if there were a huge solar flare, It could burn out all the transformers in the electrical grid, and we don't have backup transformers because no one has thought that we ought to have them on hand, and we wouldn't have the means to create transformers if we had no electricity. So there are a lot of things like that that we're very dependent upon that so far we've been lucky, but there are a number of things that could just go wrong, and then the, the dominoes would topple.
1: Rick, we're talking uplift here.
0: Oh, yeah. You kept <laughs> keep reminding me. Man. Oh, yes,
1: yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> simplicity. So, well, well, I guess the question is, is it going to be forced simplicity and, or voluntary simplicity? And if voluntary. It's, if it's forced simplicity because things have broken down, then there's going to be all this mayhem that you <laughs> that you've talked about and the billions of people struggling, dying, and so on. But yeah. if we can shift to it more voluntarily, then we can avert a lot of that.
1: That's right. I think you're absolutely correct. I want to affirm what you were saying, that we've run out of time. There's no time left. The time to adapt is now, and we should have been way into this process earlier. So we're not going to have the luxury of voluntary simplicity. There's going to be a lot of enforced simplicity, as you're suggesting. And it's going to be a rough initiation. It's going to be a rough ride for the human family. But that's the nature of initiation. The pain, the loss, the sorrow, the grief, those are traumas that will teach us. And we're going to learn the hard way how to live in this new world of limitation. And simplicity is going to be a key factor in that learning.
0: And there are people like yourself who are doing it voluntarily. But again, if we look to Washington, they're still tinkering and denial and, and so on. So I guess it's just going to get to the point where things will be forced because they haven't been chosen. That's right. as I
1: said, this is going to be a rough road. It's going to be a rough ride. It's going to be a challenging initiation we're going through already. We're beginning the process right now as a species, but it's just getting started.
0: At this point, people might be thinking, well, what can I do? What can I do? And I I would say, first of all, I'd, I'd go back to that quote that Marshy said on the boat ride in 1974, hold on to the self by whatever means you understand that to somehow know thyself, reach some stage of spiritual awakening, stabilize it, integrate it, and then you'll be better equipped to get through whatever we have to get through.
1: Yes. Become a full homo sapien, sapien. Know that you know. Find that place of knowing within and know that knowing connects with the aliveness of a living universe. Grow in that. Yes.
0: And then what else would you prescribe? You've just prescribed seven different things, you know, communications and maturity and reconciliation and all that. But let's say two or three immediate practical steps that people listening to this could take that would move them in the direction of greater preparedness for what's coming down the pike.
1: Well, I've mentioned these already. They're very, very practical. It's the food that we eat. The shift towards a more vegetarian diet is just widespread now in the country and and around the world. So it's the food that
0: we eat. I have a new Uh, friend in Israel, and she said that Tel Aviv is one of the most vegan cities on the planet. It's almost the norm over there for some reason.
1: Yes. Good point. It's a new normal.
0: There's a new normal
1: emerging, and the food that we eat is one of the new normals. Our food supply is going to be extraordinarily challenged in the decades ahead. That's a longer discussion, but the food that we eat, uh, the clothes that we wear, how do we represent ourselves in the world? In a consumer society, if you're not wearing the right clothes, and the right attire, the right shoes, the right pants, and so on. You're looked down on. We need to reframe how we represent ourselves and what is appropriate. Look at the two of us. We each have a beard. I just got a haircut so I could be on this program with you. But uh, yesterday, I didn't look anywhere as trim as I do today. So the clothes that we wear and how we more generally represent ourselves. The transportation we use. Do we really need that second car, let's say? Could we use a train, a bus, and other modes of transportation? Really, could we do that? Well, with the internet, maybe we don't need to be commuting as much as we did in the past. And I think a lot of people with the pandemic are turning, obviously, to the Internet, and they're transforming. They're saying, I'm not going to go back to the office. I don't want to do all of that. I'm just as functional and effective here at home using the Internet and occasionally meeting with my coworkers."
0: Elon Musk just announced that if you're not going to be in the office 40 hours a week, you can leave Tesla. Yes. (laughs) And he's the one who wants to colonize Mars as a plan B because the (laughs) Earth might not make it. That's right. Well, okay. Well, leave Tesla.
1: Just say, Elon, thank you very much. It's time for me to find new work and I'll go to work with an electric bike company. And you can have your high-end cars and I'm going to help create electric bikes for the masses,
0: let's say. there's A lot of people are doing that, actually. There's been a big layoff thing where people are just quitting. It kind of happened recently after the pandemic. Not that the pandemic is totally over, but people just thought, what am I doing with my life? I'm not going to go and spend 40, 50 hours a week doing this meaningless thing. I've got to find something better. So a lot of, right. I don't know what they have as a backup plan, but a lot of people have just been quitting. That's right. So the work that we
1: do, and I say to people, look, Each of us has what I would call true gifts. We have near gifts, things we're pretty good at, and oftentimes we're earning a living with things we're pretty good at. And we also have true gifts. And your true gift might be gardening. It might be the care of animals. It might be woodworking. I'm not sure what your true gifts are. But find your true gifts, and if it's your heart is in it, and if you're, you can bring your whole in being into it, you're not living divided anymore, you're living whole. At that point, you're a powerful force in the world. Find your true gifts, invest your life energy in those gifts, connect with your aliveness, be conscious about it, and you're bringing a new, new being into the evolutionary Process. So that's another thing I would suggest.
0: Was it Joseph Campbell with whom you worked who said, follow your bliss? Or was that somebody yes, else? Yes, that was Campbell. And how follow do you interpret bliss. that phrase? Well, follow your life. What brings you alive? That's how I interpret If it brings you alive, well, follow that. Which doesn't mean I want to be a rock star or something like that. Or I, Rick Archer, would like to be a professional basketball player because you have to obviously go for something that suits your capabilities. <laughs> I think everybody does have a dharma. I've I've actually interviewed people. Stephen Cope, I did a whole interview with him about dharma and finding what you're meant to do, what you're best able to do, and what you're going to evolve most quickly doing, and so on. I think that's something everybody really has to find. Yes. And there's probably a lot of people in this world who are doing something that, in a simpler world, they could be doing something much more meaningful. Yes. Than sitting in a factory assembling widgets um, all day long. That's right.
1: That's right. And they could have potentially not only one job, two or three jobs. And those jobs could be mutually supportive and reinforcing of one another. That's happening in a co-housing community. Someone might be working in the garden part of the time, doing body work, massage and whatever, another part of the time, cooking another part. And so a constellation of contributions could then become your livelihood,
0: your contribution to the larger community. Yeah, that's a whole other level of discussion. We're kind of in it right now, but I've often thought that in an ideal world, in a more enlightened world, there would be so many industries that now are behemoths that dominate our culture that we yes. absolutely have no place. You can think of some That's obvious correct. ones there wouldn't be any need for the tobacco industry the liquor industry the gun industry but all kinds of crazy financial things i mean the credit default swaps and all that that caused the crash in the bush administration everything has just gotten so complicated probably wouldn't exist in in a more enlightened world and somehow i've often felt when i say that sort of thing that all that stuff has got to come crumbling down. It's got to be dismantled somehow. I just don't know exactly how that's going to happen or how traumatic it's going to be for all involved when it does. But if we're actually headed for some kind of age of enlightenment, your third scenario, then that will necessitate or include the complete dismantling and dissolution of such structures.
1: Well, you mentioned just a few minutes ago uh, that we're going into an economic hurricane. So to be ready, they're saying, this is coming not in the far future, but in the near future. So the unraveling and the breakdown and moving into the collapse of these big structures, big systems. And as it breaks down, we're going to have to reconfigure our lives in a more resilient manner at the local level and recreate community, live simply, be more conscious connect with our aliveness, and all the rest, things that we've been speaking about here.
0: Yeah, so that might have been a good concluding statement you just made. I hope everybody can see how this discussion is relevant to the overall theme of Batgap. I've always felt strongly that spiritual awakening has to take into consideration the kinds of things Dwayne and I have been talking about today. And that if there's going to be some kind of spiritual awakening of the whole society, it will include a complete restructuring of the way society works, just as often happens in an individual's life. When they spiritually awaken, they find everything changes in terms of what they do, what they're interested in. That's right.
1: This has been a
0: lot of fun for me,
1: Rick, to talk with you and have this conversation. So I thank you for that and for sharing your wisdom as you have. So I appreciated that a lot.
0: Oh, likewise. I mean, this whole thing is one of my favorite topics and you're the best guy to talk to about Mm -hmm. it. It's funny, a, a year or more ago, you sent me an earlier version of this book. I said, oh, boy, this is great. I read the first chapter, so I said, this is great. i got to interview Dwayne, and then I'll read the rest. And you kept saying, wait, wait, I'm putting together some things. I'm doing some videos. Yes. And I'm updating the book, and then we'll do it. So we finally got around to that. Finally
1: got there, yes. <laughs> thanks for your patience.
0: You're welcome, Nathan. Thank you for everything you're doing and have yeah. been doing. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. Next week, I'll be interviewing a gentleman named Suresh. Ramaswamy. He has written a book called Just Be. And he seems like a very bright fellow. I'm looking forward to delving into his work and then having a conversation with Ramaswamy. That's the way you pronounce it. Hmm. I got it right, but it was wrong. (laughs) So anyway, that's what we've got scheduled. And those watching this, if you want to see who we have scheduled in the coming weeks and months, there's an upcoming interviews page on Batgap. You can check that out. And uh, there's a little thing on the page with each person where you can set a reminder so that your Gmail or your Outlook or whatever will pop up a reminder so that you can watch the live one if you want to. And it's nice to have people watching the live one and sending in questions. So I guess we're done. Dwayne, we'll be in touch. I'll keep sending you cartoons.
1: Yes, I'd love to do that with you. All right. (laughs) All right. Take care, brother. It's wonderful to uh, spend this time with you.
0: Yeah, me too. Stay in touch. Talk to you later.
1: Okay.